Welcome to Edge of Sports, the podcast. This week, we speak live to football player Michael Sam. Now, Michael Sam, I'm guessing you know who that is, but just in case you've been living under a rock the last five years, he is the man who attempted to become the first openly gay player in the NFL just to have door after door slammed in his face, despite being the Southeastern Conference Defensive Player of the Year. But he is still trying, he's still training, and he does not want to waste his shot. So he is still going after it in terms of trying to make the National Football League. We're going to speak to Michael Sam not only about his journey, but also about his alma mater, the University of Missouri and their strike last fall against racism and his thoughts on that. And the reason why I say this is live, even though you're listening to a podcast, is because we're talking to Michael Sam in front of a couple of hundred people at the University of Colorado at Denver. And so that's going to be just, it's that amazing vibe where you're going to hear the crowd cheering and clapping and all kinds of stuff. And I just want to give a shout out that this absolutely could not have happened without the help of Avery Bellano, the assistant director of Student Life, and Sean Lawton over at Kepler Speakers Bureau. So without further ado, here's me and Michael Sam. So I was born uh, January 7, 1990 in Texas City, Texas. I am one of eight siblings. Uh, my d- dad also has another daughter and another son. So technically there's 10 of us, but we don't count those two. Uh, so <laughs> was there any sort of LGBT consciousness for you growing up in Texas City? So no, I grew up in a very religious family. My mom was a Jehovah's Witness and my dad was a Baptist. How the hell that ever happened, I have no idea. But, but it happened, and uh, they had eight kids. So uh, it, it, it worked. So I did not know what gay was. No one talked about it. Not, no one talked about it at school. There was no one to talk about it. You can't go to someone at the congregation because they clearly they'd probably throw a Bible at you, and then you can't go to your school counselor because she would probably throw a Bible at you. So it was, very, uh, it was a very conservative town. And it's very, and my, we just didn't talk about it. So I didn't have anyone to go to. And I, I, I didn't know what gay was. So I just knew I was different from the rest of my siblings. What was the transition like going from Texas City, Texas, to being at this big state school, Missouri, big football school, and matriculating onto that team? So I was, I grew, I was born in Texas City. I grew up in Hitchcock, which is, which oh, yeah, is literally, right. literally right over their border. So yeah. it's the same thing. Uh, so the transition, uh, it was very different. Like I, my school did not prepare me well for college. Uh, not a lot of people go to college uh, in our town. And uh, I had to learn. I had a slow start when my freshman year, I almost flunked out of college. But uh, I listened to my coaches and listened to my advisors and did a complete one. It was, it was those first two years, it was rough. Mm. Uh, but I, I, I struggled uh, and I paid attention and did try to do as much work I, because, I mean, football is year-round. It's your job. I'm there, a student athlete, but clearly I'm there to play football. But I have to keep my grades up or I won't be playing. So it was, it was rough for those first two years. And after learning what, I, like, this is what we're supposed to do, I, I worked hard and did a complete 180 and uh, became the first person in my uh, family to get his college degree. Wow. That gets some applause, I yeah. think. That's um, <laughs> remarkable 
in, in so many respects because like, like just the adjustment factor to me is what's most, I mean, I, I almost flunked out my freshman year just from going to New York to Minnesota and being like, it's cold, I don't want to work. So that, that's, just, that's just an amazing thing to be able to go there, have a full-time job, which is what football is, and also to take care of your grades. You know, there's been so much talk about racism on the Missouri campus. So many people, students who were there in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, black students speaking about their experiences. And there's also been a lot of talk that for people who play football at the school, it's a different experience than for, say, a typical black student on campus. Can you speak a little bit about your experience as a young black man on that campus? So my experience, I can only speak for my experience. Since the day I got there, and not only as a black man, but as a gay black man, I knew I was, uh, I was gay my freshman year, and I, I kept it quiet until my senior year. As an athlete, you know who the athletes are, and you know who are not, who's not an athlete. And especially at a school like Missouri, they love their athletes. So I never experienced any type of racism or any type of no no one said anything homophobic to me maybe because I was too big and they couldn't like bully me anyways <laughs> if they tried so I don't know but I never I always was treated with respect and I know my teammates my African-American teammates were also treated with respect but I cannot speak for someone who's just going there for school I don't I have no idea mm-hmm. what their story is or how their experience is and that, to me, made what the students did, the football team did, all the more impressive because a lot of them were public about the fact of saying, we've never experienced racism on campus, but it breaks our hearts that black students who don't play football feel this kind of pain day in, day out on campus. Well, to my knowledge, I, I do not believe our University of Missouri is, ra- uh, is a racist school. Just like any other school, just like any other place, you have these individuals who need to be more educated. You cannot just define a whole entire school with these individuals. And uh, hopefully our school system would do a better job of communicating and educating uh, certain students, not only to all their students, but especially to these certain students who are painting a bad picture to our university, because that does not define our university. Mm. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to guess that you're the only person in this room that can answer. Um, And if I'm wrong about that, I apologize in advance. But how does one come out to a Division I football team? <laughs> I would tell you. Uh, so <laughs> so um, I, 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 when I came out, I came out to my team and finally said I was, uh, I was gay in the uh, summer of 2013. But they knew that I was gay before that. Like, my whole athletic department knew. I, I had a relationship with a, also a former athlete there, and, and we actually got engaged later on. So they knew, but how to keep it, like, it's, it's funny when, when rumors were, and by the way, girls, you guys are not the biggest gossipers in the world. It is guys. In the locker room, they would talk about anything. And then one, one of the conversations would come up. It's like, well, have, hey, hey, have you, have you ever seen Mike with a, with a girl? And like, well, now you think of it, I never have seen him with a, with a girl. And then, you know, I, I started, like, go to the bars, and then I have to make sure to paint the appearance that, hey, I need to be seen with the girl. And so that it was hard, but after a while, they figured out that I was dating a swimmer, and everything went to, went to shit. <laughs> yeah, went to... <laughs> I mean, I, I got to ask, because I think it's 
objectively true that you're a handsome dude. Oh, Am I right you. about this? Just like thank a you. handsome dude. And Dave's so were there ever... <laughs> no, it's just like one of those things. You know, sky is blue, Michael Sam, handsome dude. Um, did, did you, were there ever moments where your team would be at like a party at a frat or something and uh, women would hit on you and you would arm's length and that would make teammates also like, huh, okay. So at first, that, like, that's what I, I would try to do whatever I can to say, hey, guys, don't, the rumors are not true. But afterwards, when they found out, and it was just funny that so many girls would just come up to me. And it's like, oh, my God, like, you take, I, I know you guys don't say that, that so I'm sorry. It's like, like just hang out. We're like, and it's just funny because they know that I'm gay. And it's like, I was like, Mike, send them my way. Come on. Like, so oh, I was the best wingman for my teammates. Uh. The best. And like hands down, and till this day, it's like, man, Mike, where about your girlfriends? Like, can we like, like have a party or something? Mm. <laughs> so, so your teammates were cool, and you you would attribute that to the fact that the team was like a family, mm-hmm. and you're always gonna love your family mm-hmm. no matter what comes to play, and that makes sense. Anybody who's been on a team knows what that feeling can be like. What about your coaches, though? You know who your brothers are. My my all my coaches were my father figures. Uh, they're great mentors. And a family, if you you really are a family, it's not all rainbows and whatever. They're going to give you a hard time. So my coaches, too, gave me a hard time, especially my defensive line coach, out of love. Well, you know, it was like, but we're, we're sitting in the D-line room, and he cracked jokes like, oh, my, you want to go to uh, Club Soco tonight? Like, mm-hmm. so Club Soco was a gay club. So, he, so they would give me all kind of crap about me dancing in at the gay club like fist pumping and doing mm. all types of have you ever seen white chicks when he's just <laughs> that's what they kind of that's what he kind of uh painted me as it was all good and fun and games though wow so so there didn't need to be any sort of i think it's the word would be mediation in terms of when you came out and it was public like in terms of the team talking about it people airing out what they thought coaches having to deal with that, because I, I think in other locker rooms, the fear of that is what keeps a lot of athletes mm-hmm. in the closet. So everyone knew, and our athletic department knew way before I came out to them. It was different between then and there, as I actually finally said the words, I am gay. So the only thing that happened was, like, the next day, Coach Pinkle invited me to his office, and it's like, hey, congratulations, what do you want to do? I said, this exact words, I said, coach, it's not about me. It's about the 2013 Missouri football team and us getting to the national championship because that's what was our goal. And he said, all right, there we go. And that was, and the rest mm. of the history, we, we became, uh, we went to the SEC championship. We fell short in the fourth quarter to Auburn and then we became a Cotton Bowl champs with a, and we finished the season off 12 and two. Mm. Now, I don't know if, if folks know this, but Michael Sam here, I, I looked this up, is the only SEC, SEC for folks who don't know. I hate when you assume that everybody knows everything about football and then you speak about it like with all this lingo or whatnot. So the SEC is, is the conference and much to the chagrin of other conferences. And that's why they don't like the SEC many times. But the SEC, it's like the Yankees of college football. So a lot of people hate the Yankees. Um, Michael Sam is the only SEC defensive player of the year in the last eight years who is not currently on an NFL roster. So I got to ask you the question, is coming out, is being gay, is that the reason why you are the only SEC defensive player of the year who's not playing for an NFL team right now? I think 
there are first people need to understand that there are other gay men in the NFL, but there's not only one who is currently open, and that is myself. I think if I never would have came out and never would have said those words out to the public, I will still be currently in the uh, NFL. But because of me saying those words, I think it could have been played a huge part of my current situation. Mm. And the NFL has paid a degree of lip service to LGBT rights in the last couple of years. Do you think that's all it is, lip service, or do you think they're really reckoning with finally joining the, I don't know, 1960s? It's, it's, they should do more. They really should do more. I mean, everyone watches football. Everyone loves football. The, the Super Bowl is one of the most, just one game is the most watched event in the whole entire world. And so they have a lot of eyes on them. In the multi-billion dollar industry, they can do a lot of good. They could do more. Right now, who's leading that charge is probably the NBA. The NBA mm-hmm. is very outspoken, and they do a lot for the LGBT community. The NFL does very few. You know, when uh, Jason Collins in the NBA came out, told the world he was gay, the first, as you put it, it's an important distinction, the first out gay player in the NBA, and then you did the same Martina Navratilova, who's a hero of mine, she wrote this column in Sports Illustrated where she said these first few drops are going to become a flood as athletes get more confidence, but we haven't seen that flood. Mm-hmm. So if you had to pick one reason why the athletes who are not public about who they are, why do you think that is? Well, it's, it's, very, it's their livelihood. You're worrying about, will this affect my career? And, they, and a lot of uh, athletes, they see, well, Michael Sam was SEC Defensive Player of the Year in the best conference, should have probably went very high in the draft, but went in the seventh round and currently not in a, in a team. If he, someone that good could be in his situation, why not me? Why not me who's been, you know, I did not go to a, a big school, but I've made plays in the league and I've I earned my right to be here would have made them to do the same thing to me. So you have to look mm. out for your livelihood and your job because it, they could affect you. I mean, you mentioned other gay players in the league. I know of as well other gay players in the league. Did any of them contact you and just say like, I, I, I can't be there yet, but I support you? A- absolutely. And uh, they pretty much, and excuse my, uh, I'm just going to say what they exactly think that said to, to me. They're just like, hey, Mike, you got more balls than I do. Mm. And it's pretty much, I apologize if anyone's offended, but that's what they said. And, and it's just out of respect and, uh, and it's just like the courage that for me, someone before his career even started. And, you know, a lot of people do it at the end of their career. And it's nothing wrong. You, you, you need to like own your own truth at your mm-hmm. own time and at your own pace. Don't let no one, dictate anything about that but i felt like it was it was time i mean that's definitely the politically correct and i would argue correct (laughs) thing to say that everybody has their own journey and no one should be forced to come out everybody has the right to figure out when they're going to be public with their truth and people might have all kinds of factors that we don't know about with regards to family that really depends on them being secret about that part of their lives but i do have to ask you on some level, is it frustrating? Because you know the more people who are public, the more it's going to be the sort of thing where, of course we'll bring Michael Sam in for a tryout because it's not that big a deal anymore. It will help me. 
I, I, want, I can't say as frustrating as I said. I don't want to sound like I'm contradicting myself, but you should own your own truth at your own time. It's, it's your story. No one else should tell your story but you. But it would if more players did decide that, hey, to, to come out and join me, it will only help me and, mm. uh, and in that regards of me getting back on the team. Mm. You know, Mark Twain once said, uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And when Jackie Robinson joined the Brooklyn Dodgers, I know it's not exact when we talk about racial integration and LGBT openness in the locker room, but there is a rhyming in that when you go back and look at the complaints of Jackie Robinson's teammates in 1947, one of the things you hear a lot is people talk about the locker room and the idea of being intimate with a black man in the locker room and the locker room should be a space safe from that. Of course, you hear that about particularly gay men all the time about this idea of the locker room and they'll disrupt the locker room. I wanted to ask you for your time in NFL training camps, was the locker room ever an issue? Was it raised and how do you respond to it? So I want to ask this, your question in my own way. Uh, just because I'm gay, doesn't automatically like means that I'm attracted to you, dude. You're ugly. Like you, you, you can have like, that does not, like, I don't know why people <laughs> just be, just because I'm gay. There's like a lot of guys think that like, Oh man, like, like, Oh, he's going to be attracted to me. Dude, you're probably ugly and fat. Like I don't, not attracted to you, but, uh, the, the media really for a good story. They really put that out there. Uh, the locker situation. I never had an issue no one made it awkward or anything. I mean, after practice, I'm drenched with uh, freaking humidity in St. Louis. I'm going to go take a shower. If you don't want to take a shower with me, hey, that's fine. I'm going to get clean because I, I care about my hygiene. That's what about being gay is. You care about, we care about our hygiene a little bit more than you. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, so I, but I never did have uh, any type of situations. Uh, but guys did joke as a rookie. And, I, you know, I, I wanted to be part of the team. They did I'm not going to say those jokes. It was all fun and games, but they did some jokes. So it was, it was all good. I mean, you, and, and people got to know, I mean, you, you killed it in St. Louis. You had an amazing training camp there. You, you tied for the lead in the entire NFL preseason in sacks. But St. Louis seemed like such a bizarre fit, given that they have players who rush the passer, and there's so many teams that don't. What were your thoughts through that preseason about your chances of making that team? Making that team was was going to be difficult. It was uh, when I first got there. I like we had a board and St. Louis not even on there. Like I'm not. We right. we know we know teams that this is the teams most likely you go to. These are on the borders and these are teams that don't even think about because you're not going to go. And St. Louis was one of the, was one of those teams that I would was not even going to think about of going. And all of a sudden the Rams drafted me. So I actually said this before, I wish I never would have got drafted. I wish I would have went undrafted so I can actually kind of choose what team to, to go to. And clearly, it would have been a lot different. But uh, the Rams, being drafted to the Rams was almost like a lose-lose situation because I, they were loaded. I mean, it was a great place. It was a state I went to, to school in. It was, our owner was a former Mizzou alumni. So it, was, it seemed like a good fit, but then again, it's like, this is also a business. You still got to compete for a job, especially you went to the seventh round. And after I proved myself, it's like, okay, yes, I can be a part of this team. 
I never thought that it was, I was guaranteed, but I was like, okay, at first my chances was high, and then all of a sudden I have competition with this Ethan Westbrooks because they just got him in the free agency. And so it was, it was weird. It was really weird. It was like a lose-lose situation being at St. Louis. Yeah, and, and it raises this question, and I know you can't crawl inside everybody's mind in the NFL, but are we talking about homophobia or are we talking about this, this incredible freak out about that, you know, the D word, distractions, when they talk about bringing in a Michael Salmon? Isn't when they talk about distractions, isn't that also a form of homophobia? Because they're making it your problem when it's really their problem. I never experienced any homophobia in the NFL. But now I, I don't know what's going on in the business meeting rooms where, you know, the GMs and the head coaches and the owners are talking. I don't know what's going on in there. Mm-hmm. Wherever this is of whatever they're doing, I would like to believe that they're doing the right thing. But you know what? That's like easy enough to say, uh, easy to said and done, like seeing it. But I, there's no reason why I shouldn't be in the NFL. I've proved myself again and again. And, and so I, I, I have no idea. Like people will say, well, you know, I'm not big enough. I'm not fast enough. Well, you know what? You can go online and you can watch my film. The mm-hmm. film never lies. I may, I may lie to you, but the, my film will never lie to you. And you can see how I rushed. I am a pass rusher. I proved that in college, and I've proven that, proven that in the four uh, preseason games. I know how to play this game. I can play this game. So there's no, I don't know what goes on in, in the NFL with the guys who are making the decisions, but whatever there is, hopefully is not what I think it is. You know, you know by, by coming out, I'm, I'm sure you're aware and you've heard from people that, that you've, save some kids' lives by doing that. And that there's no greater gift that you could give the world than saving someone's life, than keeping a 15-year-old kid in a small town from doing something terrible to themselves. So, so you can't regret your decision to come out because it's done too much damn good. But do you have any regrets about the rollout, the process Going towards the NFL. Uh, as, like you said, I have no regrets uh, whatsoever about my decision of coming out. I don't regret coming out, but I do wish that things could have been differently. As when we were talking about earlier, of many things that was done was probably I was advised to do instead of it. This was not going to keep secret forever. So my coming out was going to happen. It was everyone's going to know I was gay. But if I told my advisors that. We should be patient, you know, start thinking about long term instead of short term. Mm-hmm. And if we start thinking about long term, I could have even done more good, I, I think, and actually been on a team for a season that actually is like, hey, he's been on a team. He has proven himself. He's probably what rookie of the year. Who knows? Uh, uh, some type of whatever. And then come out. I don't know. But start. We should have just start thinking about long term instead of short term. Mm. And now I, I just got to ask you about Missouri. I have to, because, I mean, it's so crazy, like like this school, which, I mean, in the last few years, I have whiplash, because it became, because of you, this symbol for a school that was going to rally around their own, that incredible scene of people might have seen it, of students standing arm in arm in a, in a human chain against these bigots who came to campus, and then you have this, you know, the, the football team strike against racism, basically, and get a president deposed what 
was your reaction to the actions of the football players? It wasn't towards racism. It was for John. If you guys don't know the story, uh, Jonathan Butler, who's a student uh, at University of Missouri, he believed that he his voice was not uh, being heard by our uh, president, and our president chose to ignore him, at least not to really to hear his demands. And Jonathan believed that, well, let, I have to do something to, for, to get his attention. And his attention was, he, he thought, uh, was to go on a hunger strike. Well, Jonathan was on maybe like day three of his hunger strike, and no one even knew. Not like only a very small percentage of our student body even knew. And um, people would walk, just ignore him. It was just some black kid in the, in the quads going on a hunger strike, and that was it. And I believe it was either going on day four, day five, that's when the football team is like, mm-hmm. like word got to the football team. It's like, well, we need to do something about it. So what they did was they was going to go on strike and they're not going to pay, do anything, any events until Jonathan Butler eats. Well, Jonathan Butler demands words pretty drastic. He said he wasn't going to eat until the president resigned. So that really became a really conflict issue right then. So it, it seems like the, the only way that Jonathan East will be for President Wolf to resign. Well, when, uh, when the football went on strike, it got national media. and the Spike whole, Lee's doing a documentary about exactly, it. Exactly, right? yeah. And uh, so it got national media, and people was like, oh, well, if football team don't, it's not going to play against BYU this weekend, they're going to lose a lot of money. Well, when there's money involved, everything, you can mm-hmm. you bet your ass that a lot of things are going to get done really fast. And so President Wolf, that happened on this. I was coming back from Washington, D.C., actually, and I landed in Chicago. And then that night, I think President Wolf said he wasn't going to resign, but that Monday morning he mm-hmm. resigned and the football team went back to work. Wow. Now, Missouri is roughly 7% um, African-American, 7.7%. The football team is 69% African-American, and those percentages are roughly the same at state colleges and football powerhouses off the country. Actually, when I looked it up, 7% is high compared to a lot of state colleges in terms of African-American students. Do you think in order to have racism on campus addressed, we need to see more athletes on campus taking political stance? No, I just think people need to start paying attention. Learn what's going on around your school, and especially issues. There were some issues that happened on campus that I, now, as I said earlier, that I never experienced any racism, but I should have went on to, but I have seen some actually. Mm-hmm. My freshman or sophomore year, some individual threw cotton balls all over our black student center. It was during Black History Month, so I, I've I've seen uh, I've seen some racist stuff, and but you know what was done? Not, not a damn thing was done right. about it. So people need to to speak up mm-hmm. and start educating other people. And I think just to know, like people don't understand what it's like. I mean, unless you're African American, you don't you really don't understand what it's like to be African American. It's like you think that it's well, we're not in the '60s anymore. It's, mm-hmm. it's everything is. It's all gravy. Well, I mean, I was looking, I was reading or watching something the other day, and uh, a professor was giving a speech, and she said, of all the white people in the room, stand up if you guys want to be treated like black people are doing today. Now, one white person stood up because they know 
what like they see it happening to black people it is it's rough and being black and gay is, is almost like a double whammy we we it's it's always like we have to prove ourselves even more to society that mm. people think that we're not educated or educated enough and like we it's just like i have to prove myself extra hard if i go to get an interview i most likely won't get hired than if i was going to uh, competing with a white person so it's it, i think more awareness should be out there mm. And the football team being able to raise awareness, I mean, it was inspiring, I know for me, because, you know, there, there's an old joke about college administrators, no offense if any of them are here, but, but the old joke is, how does a college administrator say, bleep you, thank you for your input? And this idea that they'll just constantly nod and hear, but then there's no action taken, and then you see the football players go on strike, and it's like, oh my God, breakneck action. And so, I mean... You, but then the nervous part is like, do we want the athletic department to be able to exercise that kind of power that they can shut a school down because schools are so dependent on big time football these days just to make their budgets? Yeah, exactly. And, and especially, uh, and I will say a, a school like Missouri, uh, the athletic uh, department put, brings in a lot of money, with, especially with football and basketball. And they need that money. Like any, yeah. people and depend need, on black talent exactly, to bring that money. Exactly. And I think we just need to bring more awareness. And this is, it's, it's hard for it, especially in where you're walking on campus. I walk on a campus and then I see nothing but white people. And I, they're like, to just be in college as an African-American is, is a blessing. Uh, I, I'm, I know why I'm there. I'm there because of my athletic ability. I know that I'm why I'm here. And uh, without my athletic ability, I would never have been to college. So I'm, I'm God-gifted. I'm blessed. But I can't say that for other people who, who are not having uh, – there's far more uh, other African-Americans out there who are way more intelligent for me, but they're not getting scholarships or grants or anything uh, or not getting, not getting enough for them to pay for their uh, college uh, education. I, I want to ask you about your future. Mm-hmm. And it's a multi-part question. Because it's like, where do you want to be in a year? And I think I know how you're going to answer that question. And I want you to talk about how you want to get there. But also, like, where do you want to be in 10 years? Where do you want to be in 20 years? What do you want the future to be for Michael Sam? So clearly, you know, i am I'm, I'm been training to hopefully uh, in a year and this year and for as long as I can to be on an NFL team. And uh, there, as I was saying earlier, there is no excuses. I don't want no excuses when... I write closes, uh, write this chapter of my life uh, that I did not do everything I could have done to get on the NFL team. So I want no excuses. That's why I hope that's my number one priority. But you said in 10 years. In 10 years, you know, I won't be surprised if I ever go into politics. <laughs> I'm just saying. I've, I've, I have been in a political role these last two years and didn't even know I was and I was speaking on political matters and I just I just like I won't be surprised if I get into politics you never know you, you got might... politicians ringing your phone no I have lobbyists ringing lobbyists my... yeah okay. <laughs> uh, but uh I mean hey there's a first time for everything we already have a black president you might ever see a first gay black president hey never <laughs> you never know <laughs> Never say never. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Never say that never indeed. That, that, that would be something. My goodness. Would you just, vote just, for me, Dave? Yeah, I'd vote for you. Just no Trumps as running mates. That's, that's where I draw the line. Oh, so that's, that's really interesting, going into politics 
and and really trying to. I, I mean, so I'm just I won't thinking, be surprised. Like, I, but I'm just thinking, like the last two years must have been like a crazy master's program for you in political science. Like the amount you must have learned in the last couple of years, just having to navigate this. Just, uh, just. And so, any book ideas? Are you, you going to put this down on you know, paper? I will put this down on paper uh, when the time comes. But as I said, right now I'm focused on one thing: that's get back on the field. But you know, it, it has been a freaking roller coaster. Mm. And you know, I, I was 24 years old at the time, and uh, I mean, golly, a 24 year old just making changing people's lives, people communicating to me and say, hey, I, you saved my life. Uh, and, and I never, I was so naive when I first came out. I just really, I just thought it was going to blow over maybe a week mm-hmm. or two and be like, they're talking about some, something else. And until uh, one of my teammates, you know, mentioned, you know, hey, I know you're busy and all, but if you can take this phone call with my cousin, uh, that would mean a lot to her and it would mean a lot to me. And when I did that and when she told me, like, it was very generic and like, hey, you guys had a great season. I wish you nothing best. And by the way, and then it, the really talk began when she said, you know, I just want to let you know that you saved my life. And I was like, oh, thank you. But I didn't really understand. But she said, no, you really did. And I was like, okay. And like, okay, no, cool. She's like, no, you don't understand. I tried to commit suicide twice. And when you came out, um, it gave me the courage to like to be uh, comfortable with myself and my sexual orientation, and she promised herself she would never commit suicide again. And uh, I was so shocked. I, I didn't. I didn't had nothing to say. She she knew it too. I, she knew she just dropped the bomb on me. And uh, she's like, "You don't have to say anything. I just want to let you know that I love you, and uh, I'm will always be there with you." And, and we still talk to this day. But I, then after that moment, I just started paying attention to people's stories. And there are so many stories out there that we, we don't know. Like, we don't know. We know about Jason Collins. We know about Caitlyn Jenner. We know their stories. Are, but there's so many people's stories out there that goes unsaid. And if we just take the time to listen and, and, and probably do something about it, just listening, you can save somebody's life just by listening to these people's stories. And, and I, I'm telling you what, it's... it's very hard but I, I that's why I would never I don't regret anything what I've done and I would do it again too just by being a voice for others who doesn't have a voice for themselves ladies and gentlemen Michael Sam give it up Dave thank you Thank you so much, Michael Sam. Thank you so much, University of Colorado at Denver. And thank you so much again to Avery Bellano and Sean Lawton. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. There's only two people I can imagine giving this to, and that's Julie DeCaro and Sarah Spain. Those are two sports journalists who have been in this viral video, hashtag more than mean, where they have the sexist, violent tweets read to them by men. And this has expanded the knowledge, even though they put that incredible effort to humiliate them. They were not humiliated, but the effort to humiliate them, they made it as public as possible as a way to show the kind of that sports journalists who are women have to endure. And it's really opened a lot of eyes. 
I interviewed Julie DeCaro on my other radio show, The Collision, on WPFW here in Washington, D.C. It's a show I do with former NBA player Atan Thomas. And I want to play a clip of what Julie DeCaro said about why she felt like it was so important to be part of this More Than Mean video. You know, some of these guys really don't think that they're saying anything wrong. And putting them on blast and having the world come down on them and tell them, you know, it's not acceptable is something that maybe they need to hear. I've had a couple guys reach out to me who I had blocked for trolling and said, look, I'm really sorry. I had no idea. I was bored. I thought it was funny. I thought it was like a joke. And I'm really sorry for the things I said to you. So I know that it's making an impact on at least some people and it's changing some minds. Um, You know, and obviously we hope that that happens across the board. But, you know, there's also trolls out there who just want to destroy your life and who will follow you from platform to platform and literally will just not let up. And if you don't give them attention, they ramp it up further. Um, So, you know, I think this idea that all trolls just want attention is wrong. I mean, there's people out there who, who really are set on destroying your reputation and your credibility. And part of the reason we did the video is that we really want social media platforms to step up and help us combat these people so we don't have to deal with this every damn day. So thank you, Julie DeCaro. Thank you, Sarah Spain. And thank you to everybody at Just Not Sports. That's the organization that put this video out. Thank you to everybody for listening to the show this week. Thank you particularly to Michael Sam. Hashtag give Sam a chance. Folks, if you want to contact me, Dave Zirin, you can at Twitter at Edge of Sports or at Edge of Sports at Slate.com. You can listen to back editions of the show at Edge of including last week's show where we spoke to journalist Glenn Greenwald about the goings on in Brazil, a place where I'm taking off in the next week. And I'll definitely come back from Brazil with stories now that we're 100 days out from the Olympics. Thank you to Dan Bloom, my producer. We are out of here. Peace. <laughs>